Hi, Spark. I am so glad to be here. I'm Pastor Danielle. Welcome to our Sunday afternoon service. Thank you, everybody, for contributing to the service, for leading us in worship. Thank you, dancers and singers and all of the amazing team. We are so deeply grateful for you and grateful for the joy and hope and life that these services bring to each one of us on Sunday afternoons. So thank you for being here. Uh, We're going to continue in our Luke series this afternoon from Luke chapter 3. And I'll start to read in there in just a moment. Uh, the title of today's message is Prepare the Way. And we're going to continue into our story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, so much for this time together. We pray that though we are distant physically, that you would connect us emotionally and spiritually, that we'd be bound closer together as you bind us closer to you, and that we would continue to see and experience your good love in this world. We ask right now that our hearts and our minds, our eyes and ears would all be turned towards you and turned towards your way. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, join me. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year, in the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Antipas, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. All right, let's stop right there for just a moment. That's a lot of information, <laughs> right? So you're figuring out how long now Caesar has been ruling. You've just heard that there's this per person named Pontius Pilate, which you know, for those of us who are into foreshadowing, we're like, this is going to, this guy's going to have an important role in the crucifixion of Jesus later on. We are understanding now that Herod's sons, descendants of Herod, are now also ruling up in the Galilee. And Philip is there, you know, Licinius, all of that. And Annas and Caiaphas are of the high priesthood. Now, they didn't rule concurrently. Luke just kind of gives us all that information at once and gives us sort of a painting picture, painting a picture of the leadership of the time, which is exactly what he wants us to do. He wants us to note that Rome is very ominous here in this moment, that the shadow of Rome is casting a long, heavy shadow. Earlier on, we had conversations about Jesus and Mary and Joseph and how they were going to the temple. And we'd say like in the time of Herod, King of Judea, we would have all these stories early on and Mary and Joseph are still at the temple. Mary and Joseph are still worshiping. Rome is in some ways um, a bit more benevolent not entirely, but now at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, but now in this place, at this moment in Luke, he's letting us know that the shadow of Rome is starting to cast a very long shadow, and it is a deep, dark one. That this contention, as we've had before when talking about Caesar versus Christ and these different ways, this is going to be a pressure point now for the rest of our Gospel and for the rest of our Jesus story. You see, important for us to know is that Earlier on, you know, at the very beginning when Jesus was born, things were maybe not quite as bad, though not great. But at this point now, Tiberius Caesar, the Roman Empire, who's been ruling from 14 CE after the time of Jesus, after his birth, to 37 CE, was a military genius. And he fought campaigns from Armenia to the Rhine to the Alps, the, the Swiss Alps, which meant that there had, was slavery, that there was conscription to the military. There was taxation and death for everyone who was conquered. And Tiberius Caesar was referred to by his own community as the saddest of men. 
He developed a reputation for killing anyone who challenged him, and that continued in the, ter in the area of Judea as well. He exiled Jews from the city of Rome. So Jesus and his followers, and as Luke starts to tell us, he knows that all of his readers know the story. He's like, this is the guy that was in charge about just 10 years before Jesus is starting his ministry. All Jews have been kicked out of Rome. They're not allowed to live there anymore. He abolishes all foreign cults, especially the Egyptian and the Jewish rites. So he's not permitting them to practice in the same ways in those areas. So he's allowing it maybe in Judea a bit, right, with his partnership with giving the high priesthood to the highest bidder. However, um, the rest of the Roman Empire has become a very hostile place for Jews to continue to practice. Tiberius Caesar was known for horrific abuse to women and children and any who defied him. He did terrible, awful, horrific things that the Greco-Roman culture itself, which is very distinct from the Jewish culture, looked at and said, yeah, that guy is awful. So that's the world that is being called to mind for Luke's readers as they hear who is in charge at the very beginning of Luke chapter three. We don't have that in our head. Luke's audience would have known all too well Tiberius's reputation. So by locating John the baptizer and Jesus in the context of Tiberius, Pilate, Antipas, Luke reminds us of the shadow of death and injustice over the empire. Wherever you turned, Rome was there, and wherever you turned, there, Pax Romana, the peaceful way, which was really just the brutality of the empire requiring law and order their own way, was everywhere you turned. So John and Jesus, interestingly, as Luke sets us up, are players on this stage. They're players on the world stage. The Roman empire is the antithesis of the kingdom Jesus will proclaim and the kingdom John is proclaiming it is the absolute opposite of what we have seen in our Hebrew scriptures thus far and pushing through into our New Testament. So when Jesus now in this context will say later on, not and not long from now, when we pray your kingdom come, it's because the present kingdom, the international, national, present kingdom of Rome is found lacking, right? It is a political statement to say to the God of Israel, your rule, your reign come, because implicit in that is not Rome, not Caesar, not this guy, right? So Jesus is setting, Luke is setting us all up for that, and Jesus is going to continue to be setting us up for, for understanding that as he teaches through. So let's continue on in Luke chapter 3 then. That's the setup, that's the stage, and then Luke says, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now at this moment, then, a lot of us have an image of John as somebody who is mentally unstable or ill or struggling, and so frequently in our images of John throughout media or Sunday school, we've seen John sort of portrayed as as a bit crazy. Um, at, we don't like that word, but that's kind of the word that has been used to describe, like he's this weird outlier out in the desert. But John isn't. He's not out there for some weird reason. He's out there because of the Bible. And it says this then, continuing in Luke, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. 
Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, and crooked roads shall become straight, and rough ways smooth. And all God's people, all people will see God's salvation. So John is in the wilderness for a reason. Why is he there? He's there because the Bible tells him to go there. In the book of Isaiah, it says, and there's no punctuation in ancient Hebrew, but it says, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So then you kind of go, well, okay, I think Isaiah is saying, go to the wilderness to prepare the way. Or it'll say a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Either way, John is there because of how he's interpreted the book of Isaiah, maybe similarly as to why the Essenes are out in Qumran and trying to prepare a way for the Lord with righteousness as they face the powers of this empire. Verse 7 continues then. John says to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, which again is an indication that John is not some weird outlier out in the wilderness, right? He is stepping into that prophetic voice of like Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah because he is able to draw a whole bunch of crowds. And people don't hike for miles and miles in the desert just to watch somebody who may be mentally ill, right? They go there in order to hear this prophetic word. While John is there out at the Jordan River, then he's going to give the call for ritual immersion. And ritual immersion, particularly John's ritual immersion, we call it baptism, is part of a first century Jewish practice moving from ritual impurity to purity, used following menstruation, childbirth, ejaculation, contact with the corpse, conversion, repentance, and preparation before worship at the temple. This was called mikvah. And we have found at the southern steps of the temple, as well as throughout Israel and archaeological digs, several mikvahots, that's the plural of mikvah, ritual immersion pools that would help people um, have that worship experience, that ritual cleansing immersion experience, whether they had had an issue of impurity or they simply wanted to show their repentance, a changed heart towards God, or simply prepare their heart for worship for the Lord. So John is out in the wilderness at the Jordan River with this beautiful fresh water running mikvah, living water that we didn't do anything for, that God provided. And he gives this prophetic call to repent. And here's what he says. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Okay, pretty harsh words. John's upset for good reason, right? We've just heard that the Roman Empire is deeply powerful, corrupt, unjust, and that there are powers that are trying to eke out resistance, eke out a living inside of this context, right? So if you are a, a Jew, a faithful Jew following God in this time, how, what do you do with these powers? Do you still want the temple to stand? Well, some compromise might be required. Maybe you remove yourself from the temple entirely and you go out to the wilderness just to pray and prepare for maybe war so that when the Messiah comes, you'll be able to take hold again. John's giving this call for repentance because there are things that people are doing that they need to repent from, whether it's compromise or complete isolation. In all these different ways, John is giving this call. 
Uh, the historian, first century historian Josephus mentions that John was a good man who commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God, and so to come to baptism, for that the washing with water would be acceptable to him if they made use of it, not in order to the putting away or remission of some sins only, but for the purification of the body, supposing the soul was thoroughly purified beforehand by righteousness. So just a quick note, what Josephus is saying here is that John is not saying if you dip in the water, then you're cleansed. John is asking people to immerse as an indication of the repentance that has already occurred in their heart. Now, repentance means to change. Literally in Hebrew, the word tshuva, it means like to, you're going one direction and you stop and start going the opposite direction. That's what it means to repent. So the people start to ask him, well, what should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, to be immersed. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. And some soldiers asked him, what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So what's the question? What do we do, John? What are we, how are we supposed to repent? Do we have to overthrow the empire? Do we have to go tell Caesar? Do we have to try to convert everybody? Like, what are we going to do? And here's his response. It's very simple. Take care of the poor. Don't be greedy. Don't abuse your power. Whatever position you're in, that was John's call for repentance. That's what he says here. And in that, then, John is announcing through the immersion that he is calling everybody to do in the Jordan River through this baptism, he is announcing the inbreaking, the beginning of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, where people are hearkened back to those calls for justice and care and concern for the poor. Verse 15, then. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And many other with many other words, John extorted the people, <laughs> and with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. This good news that the kingdom of heaven is real and coming. Verse 19. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. One prophetic righteous voice in the wilderness can be as powerful as Caesar, right? Herod is not going to have John out there declaring that Herod isn't behaving appropriately. The Caesar of the day, the Roman Empire of the day, the powers of the day aren't going to be happy with his prophetic voices in the wilderness because they know that there is power behind those calls. And I think one of the questions that John is asking all of us, and John and through the Gospel of Luke, is are we building for Caesar or for Jesus? 
Who are we trying to work for? What kind of world are we creating when we go about our business, whether we're part of the crowd or a tax collector or a soldier or just, you know, your average citizen? What is it that we're doing and how do we live out these values of God? Well, the first thing that John asked the crowd to do is to repent. To acknowledge the fact that we've been complicit in the systems of our day, we've been complicit in the evil of the empire, we have been complicit in the ways that we have ignored the poor, that we've been greedy, that we've abused our power. And John is asking us to acknowledge that and to repent, to stop doing what we're doing and to start going the other way. And he gives us very practical first steps for that. Now, this isn't all you have to do, right? He talks about how Jesus is coming and Jesus is going to teach us all of these other things. But this is the steps that he wants us to start with. Just repent. The next thing that I think we can note here, just from the setup that Luke is giving us in, in Luke chapter three, is that Luke is providing us an inheritance of hope. That we as Christians now follow in the footsteps of John, of Jesus, of the disciples, of the women, of Paul, and so on. And on and on and on, I, I would note, too, of the Jews persecuted within Europe, the pogroms the, the time in World War II that we see in the story of slavery and the transatlantic slave trade and all around the world, the abusive powers, right? That we are in the midst of all of that. We have an inheritance, a group of family members who've held on to hope even in the face of such evils and atrocities and powers. And Luke is inviting us to stand with John, to hear these calls, to, to listen and to pay attention that even as Caesar is in charge, even as Herod is locking John up, even as all of these things are happening, we're believing and trusting that the kingdom of God is pushing through. I think the Apostle Paul says this quite well in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. He says this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So Paul is giving us a new, an awareness, an acknowledgement of all the things that are wrong, of the fact that creation is growing out, of the fact that we are waiting and anxiously anticipating, anticipating the redemption of our bodies, we're anticipating the liberation of Israel, we're anticipating all of these beautiful good things, the coming again of the Messiah, and we wait, and we hope, and we trust that these things are coming. So how are we preparing for the Lord? Um, I continue just to be completely overwhelmed with the stories um, that John Lewis has left us with um, as we watched his service this week and continued to hear all that was going on. And I, I listened to a, a rebroadcast of a conversation between John Lewis and Krista Tippett on, on, begin, on Bean. And this was the question she asked towards the end of the interview. 
it's so clear with every accomplishment of humanity, and certainly with the civil rights movement, that so much change, important change, good change happened, and yet there's still much more work to do. Unforeseen complications appear, setbacks appear. Um, that even all the best things we do remain imperfect and incomplete. How do you how do you think about that and, well, and about I, the where the movement is in terms of your faith? Well, I, I think about it, but you have to believe there may be setbacks, there may be some disappointments, there may be some interruption, but again, you have to take the long, hard look with we, this belief. Mm-hmm. It's going to be okay. It's going to work out. If, if it failed to happen during your lifetime, then maybe, not maybe, but it will happen in somebody's lifetime. But you must do all that you can do while you occupy this space. Okay. <laughs> during your time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I feel that I'm not doing enough to try to inspire another generation of people to find a way to get in the way, to make trouble, good trouble, or just make a little noise. I love this quote. The acknowledgement that much of what we hope for and look for may not happen in our lifetime, but that does not mean that we give up hope. It does not mean that we stop believing. It does not mean that we stop working, right? It is not our obligation to do all the work and to complete it, but it is our obligation to do some good work. And this is what John is calling the people to, and this is what Jesus will call to as well. So as we hear this voice of John in the midst of the powers of this Roman Empire, this empire of abuse and death and taxation and cruelty, we are invited to repent for any part that we've played in it, We're invited to prepare the way of the Lord, and we are invited to hope, to hope in the new kingdom that is breaking in. And every time we pray that prayer, your kingdom come, we are declaring hope, hope that the kingdom of the Lord will break into this world. For the kingdom of God is advancing, breaking in, and we are invited. Amen. In the continuation of the declaration of that kingdom, we want to invite you to take communion with one another. Grab your juice or wine and some bread or a cracker and join us in our time of worship here at this song. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it.